we do have verses on the side screen, so we're making improvements uh, every week. But if, you, uh, if you're accustomed to having your Bible open, if you like to uh, highlight, underline, make notes, um, I encourage that. So you can find your way to <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 4. This past week, uh, Chris and I uh, had the, uh, and our wives had the chance to go to uh, an annual uh, pastor's luncheon for pastors from churches, uh, evangelical churches all throughout uh, the valley. And it was, uh, it was just a great evening. Number one, it was good for me because uh, I'm the new guy. And I got to meet uh, pastors from Crested Butte all the way down to Lake City. And uh, it, was, it, was an inc- it was an incredibly encouraging time. Uh, again, coming from a big city uh, or a metroplex, that kind of stuff doesn't tend to happen. Uh, and there was just, a, I'm happy to report to you, just a great spirit, and you're probably not surprised by that, just a great spirit of uh, gospel partnership. Now, not every uh, group that would call themselves a church was at this meeting. Uh, these were uh, churches that are uh, committed to preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so um, it, was, it was just a, a wonderful time, and it really validated uh, the, our time together, what I sense uh, as our greatest need uh, in this new season of ministry together. And in a word, uh, it's unity. Unity. Uh, and that's kind of what I want to talk about uh, this morning, and I'm going to use Ephesians chapter 4 uh, as our text. So what, do I, what I don't mean by unity uh, is that uh, um, what often happens in churches is that uh, the pastor comes up with a direction and wants everybody to fall in line, and, and so we're all on the pastor's agenda. I, I don't mean unity in that sense. Uh, I don't mean unity in the sense of uh, what our culture would call uh, the value of tolerance, where we say, well, let's just go along and get along. I mean, let's, uh, let's not make a, a big deal out of some things just so we can keep the peace. I, d- I don't mean unity in that sense. Uh, generations of Christ followers before us have paid high prices to stand for the things that we hold most sacred, like the deity of Jesus Christ. So uh, unity uh, doesn't come... Uh, isn't sacrificed in the name of tolerance. That's not what I mean. Uh, What I mean by unity is that which Christ envisioned for the body of Jesus Christ uh, to be marked by. And that's what we find in Ephesians chapter 4. So when you hear the word church this morning, uh, or Christianity, um, every one of us has uh, a number of thoughts about the word that we hear. And what I want to ask you to do this morning is to set aside the thoughts that you uh, have come to think about regarding Christianity and the church based on tradition, based on uh, expectation, based on your preferences, uh, and just consider afresh and anew what it was that Jesus Christ intended when he talked about the church being one. Now next Sunday we're going to start uh, a new series uh, called Essentials, Made to Thrive, Not Merely Survive. Uh, And the the goal of this series uh, is for us to examine uh, what it means to live abundant life in Christ as an individual, but then also what it's like to to do that in the context of a healthy church. So we're going to look at what is it that God uh, needs us to be uh, if we're going to reach the community around us, if we're going to be the church that he's called us to be. And and it's a great thing that we have a network of like-minded, gospel-focused churches in our community, but our As I understand it, my calling as the pastor of this church and your calling as a member of this church is to let the Lord use us to build this church. It's interesting that the letter we look at today, uh, which is a letter Paul wrote to 
the church in Ephesus is not a church that exists any longer. Now, I want you to understand two things. Number one, the church is in no danger of fading from the scene. Uh, As long as the Lord sets upon his throne, the church will continue to accomplish her purpose, and there will be a church in every generation faithfully preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, local churches come and go. So there is, as we face our 101st year uh, of ministry in Gunnison, there is a real question before us. Will we follow Jesus Christ to become the church he has called us to be so that the gospel of Jesus Christ and uh, the expanse of the kingdom will continue to work its way out in our lives, uh, in our church, and around this community? There's no guarantee of that. The guarantee is in our following the Lord faithfully and striving to be the church He's called us to be. That's, that's kind of the point of this new series. But this morning, I want to start with this idea of unity. There is a reciprocal relationship between uh, you, what you are called to as a Christ follower. That is, if, if you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, perhaps you're here this morning and you've never taken that step, but if you recognized your own need for the Lord, if you've come to understand that you're a sinner uh, in need of God's forgiveness, and you've turned to Jesus Christ and His work upon the cross, inviting Him to forgive you of your sins and to be the Lord of your life, then there's a reciprocal nature between what you and I experience as individuals and what we become as a church. We cannot be together all that God has called us to be if we are not as individuals following the Lord, fully devoted to living an abundant life. So it's the old adage that the weakest link, that the, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Now, we've not identified anybody as being weak. We all bear equal responsibility in that chain. And if we're going to be what God calls us to be, if we're going to discover the good that he has planned for us, then we must be unified around those two ideas. Uh, the vital relationship uh, turns on whether or not you and I are committed individually and then how we experience that corporately together. And while I would use the word unity, more specifically what Paul has in mind, we would call it the unity of the Spirit. That is what we're focused on today. Jesus, after endowing his followers with the Spirit, prayed this prayer in John 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, And I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you have loved them." So in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul takes up the same concern that Jesus has prayed for in John 17, that we as Christ followers, as sons and daughters of God, would be one, that we would be unified. In Ephesians chapter 4, which is where we'll be, Paul begins talking about how to live out the faith he has just focused on in chapter 1 through 3. And he prays a very similar prayer uh, and that we'll read in just a moment at the end of chapter 3. But what I want you to know about the background of Ephesus is that Ephesus is a perfect book for us to look at in our culture. Because Ephesus was a city that was uh, a coastal city. Uh, it was a Roman port and there was a lot of power and influence there. And so Paul is writing to a church that sees uh, power on display all around them, much the way we do in our culture here in the West. 
And the temptation for those of us in the church is to somehow uh, feel as though we must rely on human means in order to accomplish what God has given us to do. And so we all have our ideas about what that looks like. And we all develop our own preferences about how the church should be or what we should accomplish. And before you know it, the church can be fractured and splintered because man has ideas about what should be. We will never be God's church if we stray from his ideas for what makes the church the church. And what makes the church the church is the unity of the Spirit, is the work of the Spirit that saves me. It is the work of the Spirit that makes us the body of Christ. And so Paul is writing to Christians who might be tempted uh, to adopt human means. But this is a church uh, that doesn't have a tradition. They only have the truth. The the church at Ephesus uh, had no program. They only had new life. The church at Ephesus had no building. Uh, They were just gathering in houses. And so in many ways, the Christians at Ephesus were in a better position to understand how desperately they needed the work of the Spirit than you and I are. Because we have buildings. We have programs. We have tradition. But these things do not guarantee the survival of community church. What guarantees whether or not you and I will live abundant lives in Jesus Christ is the Spirit of God at work in us. What guarantees whether or not we will become together the church that God intends on mission for Him in a world that desperately needs to see the gospel is the work of the Spirit and at work among us. And so Paul prayed in chapter 3, verse 14, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and in earth is named that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be strengthened to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then he ends chapter 3, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or think. That's what we want, isn't it? Isn't that what you want in your own personal walk with the Lord? Immeasurably more than I can even ask or think. That's what we want as a church, is it not? Immeasurably more than we can ask or think. So what we notice in Paul's prayer is it's, it's all God-focused. This comes to us from the Father. It is through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's by being rooted in Christ. And so if you and I are going to live an abundant life, if you and I are going to to be the church God's called us to be, then we must value, we must treasure this idea of the unity of the Spirit. By definition, God's work in our day among us. We are utterly dependent upon the Spirit. And so I title today's message, Handle with Care. The fragile gift of the, spirit, of, the, of the unity of the Spirit. Now, it's fragile, again, not because God is fragile. It's fragile because He has entrusted it to us. And how we manage it, how we steward it, determines the vitality of our own personal walk as a church.
So in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, Paul speaks to uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And there's a section where he deals with the individual, and there's a section where he talks about how the unity of the Holy Spirit plays out corporately in the church. And this is what I want to look at. I want to give you two uh, main ideas, but let me start with Paul's opening words in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. The first point that I want to give you today is that while unity is a precious gift of the Holy Spirit, it is sustained by the mutual commitment of believers to full devotion to Jesus Christ. You notice Paul says he urges us to walk worthy of the calling we have received. Brothers and sisters, you should know it if you don't already, you have been called by the Lord. And as much as you're following Jesus Christ, there is a calling upon your life. And Paul doesn't want us to forget that not only is our experience with the Lord dependent on our understanding of the call, but the church lives in the wake of that understanding. So if you and I as individuals fail to walk worthy of our calling, it will adversely affect God's work in our community, in our world. So Paul says, live worthy of your calling. He calls us to action. There are two words there in the Greek that are important. The first is the word peripateo. Peripateo means uh, to walk simply. It means to be making progress. It means perpetually moving forward. The problem with so many Christians is that they come to know Christ uh, early in their life at, say, youth camp, and that's the highlight of their spiritual journey. And the further they get away from, spiritual, from youth camp, the further they get away from that moment of decision, the, the colder they become, the more distant they become. They haven't been called. They don't understand that they've been called to walk with Jesus. You have a job to do tomorrow. You'll get up. You'll go about your, you'll, you'll get to work on time. I know you will, right? My wife struggles with this, not confessing her sin. But she just, doesn't matter how early she gets up, she just needs more time. I think it's the hair. It's easy for me to get ready. But you'll go do your job tomorrow and you'll do right. In as much as you have a good work ethic and you have integrity, you'll do right by your boss. But your calling tomorrow is to walk with Jesus Christ. Paul says, live worthy of the calling that you have received. Then he uses the idea of equal weight. It's the Greek word asiaso. It means to balance accurately between belief and practice. The Ephesians can be divided in, uh, in two, the f- chapters 1 through 3 and chapters 4 through 6. Chapters 1 through 3, Paul is talking about uh, the beliefs of the Christian life. Chapters 4 through th- 6, he's talking about behavior. And this is what Paul is concerned, is that we, we not just give lip service to what we believe, but, but that we actually live it out. It's important that people in your sphere of influence see you following Jesus, see you walking with Jesus. If they're ever to come here and worship with us and and perhaps hear the gospel, it will start for most people because they have a friend in their life who modeled it for them. And this is what Paul wants them to know. It matters that you walk with Jesus on a daily, consistent basis. And then he defines it by attitudes. He says, be completely, these be completely commands. Uh, He says, we need Christ-like character because we're imperfect people. 
So the reason why your calling is important is because you're hard to deal with apart from the work of Jesus Christ in your life. I'm hard to deal with. We are sinners saved by grace. This is a a fellowship of saints, but first it's a fellowship of sinners. So Paul says, don't be distracted by the world around you with all of its power and means. Remember that you need Christ. You're called to follow Him. And so be characterized by humility. It's the opposite of pride. Be characterized by gentleness. This is not meekness, weakness, it's meekness, which is power under control. We see that in Moses. We see it best in Jesus Christ. This is how the world should know us, like Jesus, humble and gentle. He says, walk with patience. That means endurance. That you don't, you don't get shut down because there's an obstacle. You just continue. And so in, in, even within the church, and we haven't gotten to the corporate aspect of this, but even within the church, we all have uh, our own background. We all have our own bent. And so things will come up like the color of the carpet. And if we're not careful, if we're not all walking with Jesus, then we'll make the mountain out of a molehill. And the color of the carpet, and I hope I'm not stepping on your hobby horse yet, the color of the carpet does nothing to change a soul. What changes a soul is Jesus Christ. We are blessed to have beautiful artwork on display. But that and all of this building will burn up wood, hay, and stubble when it's all said and done. What will change a life is when people see Jesus in you. Christ-like character. And the unity of the Spirit in our midst is dependent upon you and I walking worthy of the calling we have received You see, oneness is directly affected by our individual walk. If we're walking with Christ, if we're following our call, then Paul says we should be eager, verse 3, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What is all that one about? Well, oneness is another idea uh, for unity. And we know this all too well. If, how many of you have been married? How many of you are married? Okay, so you know this on a very pragmatic level, and yet somehow... We forget this when we get to church. Marriage is the other institution that God created. The marriage is is the union between a man and a woman, just as God designed. And each of us knows that, well, we learn it the hard way, we men, that there has to be a certain amount of unity in the household if there's to be peace. And so we learn early on after butting our head against the wall that I can't change her and she can't change me. That's not what God put us in each other's life for. We need unity. And in the process of pursuing oneness, God changes both of us. I'm type A. My wife is not. When we got married, I'm the kind of guy who believed there's a place for everything and everything should be in its place. My wife is not like that. She loves planting things anywhere. And in the early years, I was trying to figure out how to make her more like me And she was resolved to resist that and felt like I should be more like her. And I can tell you, those type A among us, I can tell you that I'm the beneficiary. I've learned how to live and relax and not make a big deal out of things because of my wife. That kind of blessing comes because in marriage, because we pursue oneness. We try to live out our 
responsibilities instead of maintaining rights. Well, the same thing is true in the church. As we come together, we must value the oneness of the Spirit. And Paul says uh, we should be eager to maintain it, to keep the unity of the Spirit. Now, here's the reason why this is a fragile gift. The unity of the Holy Spirit is something that God gifts to the church. We do not deserve it. It's a grace. But it's one of those gifts, it's one of those graces that if we're not careful, we can compromise it. We can quench the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. And once we have lost that in our own personal lives, in our shared life as a church, it's not something we can just readily get back. In fact, when sin sets in and we get stubborn, it's a long path before we ever discover the Spirit has left us. The Spirit is not directing me. I'm directing myself. And so Paul says we should, we should hold this idea of the unity of the Spirit, of God at work among us with sacredness. We should strive to keep it. We should protect it. This means we should give ourselves wholly to the spiritual endeavor of not only following Christ, but of doing life together. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book Life Together, wrote these words, underscoring that the work of the Spirit in the church is not human ingenuity. He says, The essence of any Christian life together depends on whether it succeeds at the right time in bringing out the ability to distinguish between a human ideal and God's reality, between spiritual and human community. You see, there are churches all over the landscape in our country, in our world, that have nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ but we call them churches. There are churches just like ours that will have a vision statement or scripture or stained glass depicting God's work among us all over the building, and yet God is not there. This is the very thing that Jesus rebuked Laodicea for in Revelation chapter 3 because they had grown lukewarm. They didn't even know he was gone. Our job in the day that God has planted us is individually to pursue Jesus Christ with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to do it in community, to do life together as a church, and to strive to maintain God's work among us, the unity of the Spirit. It's not something, once we've lost it, we can easily get back. And so Paul says to the Christians in Ephesus, one, one body, one mind, one father, One son. It's all about one. And you're not the one. And I'm not the one. We are the beneficiaries of God's good grace to send his spirit into our hearts and to unite us as a family where once we were strangers, now we are brothers and sisters in God's family. The point of this idea of oneness is that we depict to the world who God is. Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see, oneness can be explained imperfectly in the confines of marriage, but it's perfectly displayed in the Godhead. Father, Son, and Spirit, always one. And this is who we are called to be. One, as Jesus prayed, like the Father and the Son and the Spirit. For this reason, it is a fragile gift. And we must strive, as Paul says, to keep the unity of the Spirit. Practically speaking, that means in the days ahead, 
We will pray for God's will. We will seek the course of what it looks like for us to continue to advance the kingdom and to share the gospel. I can tell you it will look like reaching young people, young adults in our community because they make up the median age in our city. And they are not represented at community church. That's not who I am. I have some young adults and have a heart for them. So we must do what God has put before us to reach a field. And as we wrestle through those things, we will certainly come up with issues over which we disagree, but we will strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit so that God is glorified and so that when we stand before Him, we have joy because we did what He had given us to do. It starts with maintaining the unity of the Spirit. Then Paul continues, he says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And so Paul talks us through what it means for you and I to be fully devoted to Jesus Christ, humble gentle, patient, to live, a, uh, to live with a manner of forbearing one another in love. That's what we're to be known by. But then he shifts to what the unity of the Holy Spirit will produce through us as a church. And that leads me to my second thought. That unity, while it is a precious gift of the Holy Spirit, is also to be maintained by the mutual commitment of believers to doing life in community, to doing life together. And I'm not talking about Community in the sense of Gunnison. I'm talking about the body of Christ, the redemptive community that God has created through his work. So we are called to commit ourselves to dependence first uh, on Christ's authority. That's what Paul says, that it's Christ who created this. Christ descended into the lower regions of the earth, which means that once he had been crucified and was in the grave, that he went to Sheol, the Old Testament concept where everyone died and went to. And there were those who were uh, in Hades, uh, separated across a gulf in Abraham's bosom. And he proclaimed liberty to those who had died in faith. And he led them as captives in his victory at the resurrection. And in doing so, it says he gave gifts. And, And this is part of what God wants to work out through you as an individual for the benefit of the local church. God has called us to be dependent on what Christ has done. What Christ has done is given us, that's the word grace, is actually the word gift. He's given us uh, his spirit. He's given us salvation. He's given us a, a, a lie, a new life. And he's placed us, importantly, within the church. Now, you walked into church, and perhaps it's the first time in a while But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, on the day you trusted the Lord, he placed you in the universal body of Jesus Christ. You're a member of the church, and you're there for a purpose. And that leads us to the gifts that he's given. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is not the only gift that God has given you, but that he gives you a special ability by which you are meant to minister to others around you. Paul continues, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So we are dependent upon Christ's authority. We're also committing ourselves to interdependence with one another. You need me, and I need you. And some of you have a very low value for your need in the church. But please understand that without your gifts, without your ministry, the church can never be 
all that God intended. Because you and your gifts are Christ's idea. We need each other. And so as we continue to pray through what God wants to do through us in the coming season, it will require every one of us. What plagues the church in our day is that it's a spectator sport. Too many people are sitting in the bleachers instead of on the field. Our job, my job as a pastor, is to get you on the field. Now, it's, it's a great thing to have a, a solid work ethic. And perhaps stacking chairs isn't a ministry. And, you know, most of us got our start in the church just stacking chairs. But I hope that you're aware that the Spirit of God has given you a unique spiritual gift that He intends to use. And while each one of us can roll up our sleeves and apply some elbow grease and do a job, redemptive work happens when we partner with the Holy Spirit in the area of our giftedness. And when we're partnering with the Holy Spirit, God can produce exponentially more than we can on our own. This is what the church needs for every one of us to be producing exponentially more than we can on our own. Why? Because we have the unity of the Holy Spirit. So unity is the fragile gift of the Holy Spirit to believers in the church. Our oneness in Christ doesn't destroy our individuality. God calls us. He doesn't wholesale change us. He's the one who wired us the way we are, and He intends to redeem it and use it for His glory. God needs you to be you, just fully devoted to Jesus Christ. And as you and I treasure the work of the Spirit among us, we will see God do great things as we maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul finally reveals uh, the benefit and blessing of God's design. He says in verse uh, 12b that God has given gifts for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood or mature womanhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be like children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, part of what they struggle with in their culture, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together and held by every joint which is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The beauty of God's church is unity in the midst of diversity. The, what separates the church from every other organization we could point to is that it houses the ministry of God himself. God has shed abroad his love in our hearts. He's planted his spirit within us. And it is the spirit of God which makes us a redemptive community. It is the spirit of God which will make us the church God intends us to be. So we are called to a life of dependence upon Christ and interdependence upon one another. We are to be a church marked by calling, character, oneness, Christ's authority over our lives, gifted service, and maturity. The vision of our church, uh, community church exists to bring glory to God 
to equip servants of Jesus Christ and to share God's love so that the whole world may know him. If we are to achieve that vision, more importantly, if we are to be the people and the church that God intends, it will require that we treasure and we work to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This is what God has called us to. I want to close our service, uh, or at least the message this morning, by asking you to join me in praying for God's Spirit, that His Spirit would be among us, that we would each be committed in the place that God has planted us to be fully devoted to Jesus Christ, to be changing because we need it, to bear the characteristic marks of Christ, and then third, that we would become together what only God can make of us, and that we will all be grateful for it one day when we stand before Him, knowing that the gospel has been preached faithfully and the kingdom has advanced in our community. To do that, I want to ask as many of you who are interested and want to, to meet me at the altar. Uh, if you can't come down, that's fine. You can stay where you're at and we'll, you can pray with us from where you are. But I would just like us to fall as a church on our face before God on whom we are dependent. It is not by the cunning of man. It is not by the marshalling of resources. It is not our buildings. It is not our cleverness that will make us a movement of God in our community. It is His Spirit. So would you stand with me? And if you would like to join me here, we'll pray. Uh, and then we'll have uh, a benediction and we will be done. Come join me, would you? Father, we are um, a needy people. As every generation of God followers before us, we are well acquainted with how desperately we need you. Perhaps it doesn't show readily in our conversations with one another, in our comings and goings about the community. But Father, as we kneel before you, we can't help but be honest with ourselves. We desperately need the Lord. The task you've called us to is too great. We might build an organization. We might do some philanthropic good. But we cannot be the church apart from the work of the Holy Spirit among us. And so, God, we bend our knee before you today. We thank you for your faithfulness to us in the past. A hundred years, a church that has a reputation among the community, both churched and unchurched. You have shouldered community church with a responsibility to lead in this community, to be light and salt, to reach those who you, whom you love that are far from you. And God, if we are to do what you've called us to do, it will not only require the full working of your Holy Spirit, it will require surrendered lives. And so, Father, we ask 
that you would renew us in the unity of the Spirit. We pray, as Elisha did, that you would give us an extra portion. Father, I pray that we would be a committed people, that each man, each woman who stands before you or kneels before you would be resolved that they are called to be fully devoted to Jesus Christ, that they're called to look like you, to be gentle, to be patient, to forbear one another in love. Father, would you mark us by the Son? And as we come to look more and more like Jesus Christ, as John says, may it be Christ that increases as we decrease. Would the small things that often become big things in the church fall to the wayside? May we all have a clear vision of what it means to be used of the Spirit. And then, Father, out of our own personal commitment to follow Jesus Christ, may we be committed to one another, that you would build a community church, a redemptive community that could span another hundred years. And, Father, may it result in men and women coming to Christ, growing up in you, the kingdom advancing not just here but around the world. And when it's all said and done, we know that we will be seated at your throne, that it will have nothing to do with what we've done. It will be what you've done. And we will be careful to give you all the praise and glory. And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.